Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. It's great to see you. Before we get started, a quick announcement I need to make, uh, which we made in the first service. Uh, want you guys to be aware, since we started back here over the last, you know, maybe six, maybe eight weeks, we've gotten, you know, more and more people coming back to services. Uh, but interestingly enough, we have less and less people volunteering. And so uh, it's created a little bit of a crisis in the workings of uh, Hillside a bit. If you came in this morning, uh, we funneled everybody in both services, and the uh, first service was a little larger than this. Uh, we funneled everybody through that middle door because we only had three ushers instead of the eight we normally use. So uh, our children's ministry is really kind of in a crisis. So what's happening is we're, we're burning people out that are doing it every week to cover. So we have some families, literally the whole family serves. So if one of them gets sick, there's five people that didn't show up this day, and now we're panicked. And so uh, we're kind of in that place right now where some of the people were, were, that we're using are burning out. They're using, they'll spend two weeks with the welcome team, which is really you know, big and important for guests. And by the way, we're having more guests over the summer than we've had or over this time frame since we started in the fall than we have in a long time. So we have a lot of guests coming, but our guest services are shrinking a little bit. And the same in our children's ministry. What we don't want to have to do is just go back to one service because we can't we can't produce the volunteers for it. So what I told the first service is we're sort of in a, just don't, don't panic, uh, hillside's going away. No, no, it's not happening. What's happening is we're sort of in a wartime because of COVID, and so everybody's a little hesitant about what to do, um, whether they should, and that kind of thing. And so we're in a little bit of a wartime, and so what we're asking is, I mean, in wartime, you don't ask people if they like kids. You just tell them we need help in the kids' ministry. You don't ask people if they don't like to smile. Some of, you know, some of you don't want to greet anyone when you come. But during wartime, you're a greeter. Uh, so if you are willing to help, if you're willing to come here on a Sunday morning during these days, that's a wonderful gift to Hillside. We're just asking that you would help us. So if you'd like to, we are going to have on November 8th, this is two weeks from now, on a Sunday during this, during this hour, right here, uh, an opportunity for you to sort of meet with a group of people who will help just orient you to what it means to help in one of these areas. I've never done it before in either one of these, but I'm happy to help for a while. How, what does that look like? November 8th. So if you'll just, all you have to do today is text uh, volunteer hillside, should come up on the screen behind me, and uh, to, to 97,000. And we will do all the other work to get you connected to that training time and everything else. All right? So we could uh, really use your help if you're willing to. Because we don't want to have to go to one service or, or children's ministry is only going to be in one service. Uh, or shut down the coffee because there's nobody to do that. We're getting close. Uh, so if you would help us out on that, that would be, that would be terrific. All right, um, 
So I want to pray for our country before we get going. Let me, uh, let me go ahead and do that. Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity that we have to be together this morning. And all of us are just acutely aware uh, what time of year it is, what, what uh, time it is nationally in our world. With an election on the horizon, uh, there's a lot of uh, anxiety, uh, concern. Uh, and that anxiety and concern, Lord, has produced in us and in our world extreme ideas, extreme attitudes, extreme actions, especially toward each other, where we are uh, not being very civil and uh, not thinking extremely well and sort of acting desperate about things. And I just pray that you'll open our eyes to your truth. Pray for our country that is the, its leaders who have big decisions to make, complex things to think about. Uh, they are um, mad. They're overconfident. And it's bleeding into our country, and we are damaging ourselves and others in light of it. But for us, Lord, we need to be reminded that uh, Like everything else in our lives, elections are in your hands. You are the ultimate authority. We trust you for all outcomes in our life, especially this one right now. So, help us with that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, uh, early in the summer, I came across... This fellow, Stanley Hauerwas, is in his 80s now, but he's an American theologian, ethicist, and a public intellectual. He, for was a longtime professor at Duke University, uh, taught in their school of law and in their uh, school of religion. He has written extensively on the topic that we are addressing. Uh, In the mid-70s, I think it was, he wrote the book Resident Aliens, and that's what I read first by him. He is a Christian and uh, is trying to help Christians deal with society and and public life. Uh, It's a good place to start if you want to read him. He's written a couple of other things, just a little bit more in depth. I just finished uh, one of his books called Approaching the End, Eschatological Reflections on Church, Politics, and Life. And what he means by approaching the end is the end of Christendom, the end of the impact socially of Christianity on culture. It's a little bit heavier read. But he has this really, this, without giving you context, he has this moment in the book. It's very honest, and it stopped me in my tracks and uh, might be good for, for us to think about as well. He says, indeed, it may be I am more American than Christian and thus may be tempted to confuse my Christianity and my American way of life. Well, that stopped me. I just started to reflect on that myself. Am I more American than Christian? Uh, You know, the story of America and American ways are extremely seductive. Extremely seductive. We've got to be wary of the pull 
um, of, of the American way of life and politics on our lives. Because it might very well be, if you did a really serious examination of your life, that the American way has become more of what dictates your life priorities and security than Christianity. And so he writes, the loss of Christian influence socially and politically could be a good thing in light of that. One of the costs, this is a great line, one of the costs that we've paid for social and political status in society is there is a less critical need for corporate and church identity. And he's right about that. Politics seem to be going well. If we're getting our way in the society, tend to maybe back off the intensity of who we are and how we operate as a body, as a church. This really gets at the bottom of the series, at the end of the series that we've been doing. I've been trying, essentially, to say what he said right there. He, he did it better. Uh, the series is called The People of God. How do we shift from a sort of an American identity to a Christian identity, and then what would happen to our lives if we did do that? I receive a number of texts and emails from all of you, uh, some con- conversations that we've had face-to-face, and multiple, uh, many of you have said that the series is prompting you to think differently about cultural issues, uh, no matter what angle you're coming from, which is a good thing. And I just wanted to remind you that when we come together, whenever we're together like this, like we are now, and surrendering or submitting ourselves to each other and to Scripture, uh, to God's Word, at any moment, something precious to us or deeply ingrained in us, a belief, an idea, an opinion, can be altered or surrendered or abandoned completely. Have you had that experience? That's why Annie Dillard's, you know, her most famous quote uh, has to do with when, what happens when people gather it's, she's, as a church on a Sunday morning. She says, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs, in other words, outside the tombs, if you're standing upright. You're not really sensible of, of the conditions Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one really believe a word of it? The churches are like children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. Just a bunch of kids playing with some dangerous things. They forget how dangerous things are when we get together. So she writes, it's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Uh, ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. I mean, if we had enough ushers, we would, we would do that. Uh, we don't have enough to do that. She says, they should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. This is a great line. God has a way of pulling you to a place and you can never go back to where you were. Anyway, I think that's what Peter's message is. 
uh, to, to us as believers who are being rejected by a culture facing opposition at all levels of society. Peter's going to say, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are together? Uh, hence the series. You're the people of God. You were once not a people, he says in 1 Peter 2.10. But now because of God's mercy, you are the people of God. This, is, this, this ought to weigh on you, Peter says. And so I guess in my heart for this series is I want to restore the sense of worth and the sense of wonder and hope of being God's people anywhere at any time in any culture. So Peter is saying, your sense of loss, your sense of rejection, your sense of alienation is healed by your new identity to a community and to nothing else. And if some other identity knocks you on your fanny, knocks you on your bottom because it's missing or because it's disappearing, then you know you've been holding on to something you shouldn't have been holding on to. You held it too tightly. So Peter's approach takes us off guard a little bit because he doesn't want us to panic or overreact. He certainly doesn't want us to turn on society or to attack it. He wants you to be the church. Be the people of God. This is your greatest political identity and impact is the church. And we're not formed in reaction to the world. In other words, we should be that in any culture. Now, again, in American culture, you're sort of lulled and you're pulled and seduced into a sort of a way of life that's really comfortable and it pulls you toward it. Uh, but we're not for, as a church, it doesn't matter what culture we're in, your, it, your identity is already determined by what God has done in you and, and for you and through you. And so we're not formed in reaction to the world. We are who we are because of what God has done for us. And so how God shapes us and how he reaches the world is through that, those people. I want you to come to see the importance of those people. I don't think here in America um, um, we think highly enough of the church. I don't think we see it as indispensable. Indispensable to our lives and, and, and mission critical. Um, it's important, but it's not enough. I mean, we got to go out there and fight wars and win battles on moral grounds and, 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 and political grounds. And that's what matters. And so, Peter or Ron Dreher in a book I, I read earlier. Uh, the Benedict Option. Talk more about that later, but he writes this. We vote with more conviction than we show up for Sunday worship. And right now, you might be feeling that. That'd be a little bit of a clue that says you're more American than Christian. One of the things that struck me about the video of that pastor in China, where they're all, you know, 
trying to survive opposition to the church, or the shutting the church down and, and persecuting believers was how desperately they need the church because they have no other connections in society, no other hope to grab anywhere else. And because they don't have it, they rely on each other. And that's why he said, we always have revival in here. It's amazing. There's no pettiness in here because we're desperate for each other. We can't find the kind of community anywhere else. And so and we can, and we do. And I'll say, uh, you know, just a, just a thought for you during this time uh, where we're being careful because of COVID of getting together um, to protect ourselves to some degree, we got to keep in mind, uh, beware of the very, very subtle idea and then habit that being together is not essential. That's slowly infiltrating the church largely everywhere. Uh, there's a significant loss when we're not together. So I hope you feel that loss. And I hope you need it. I hope you sense your need for it. So Peter's got to help us recapture that sort of awe and wonder of our corporate identity. And he's going to start literally by laying just really important groundwork that we have to see. Uh, how, we, how, how do you help people you know, formulate a completely different structure for the way they view themselves? That's what Peter's trying to do. So he's going to go, he's going to start at the bare bones facts and build on them. And we're going to let him do that for us. Now, you'll recall that by the time you get to chapter 2 of this five-letter book, and there's only five letters in this book to these Christians, i got to say what I mean and say it quick to this group of people. And i got to say it with punch. And he gives in chapter 2 two very important metaphors. We looked at them at the beginning of this series. Uh, about, we talked about infants and living stones. He says this, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. That's the first one is infants, craving growth. As you come to him who is a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And so these are our two images, these two metaphors. And they're critical. And by the way, they're inseparable. See, a lot of people, because infants talk about, this, this talks about grow, okay? And this is the build piece. A lot of people want to grow, but they don't want to build. They're together. They go together. And I want to show you how. So infants crave, I've talked to you about my my. My granddaughter, the baby that's living in our home, you, because uh, um, you see this new life formed in her, which is the point of Peter's metaphor. This new life is in him, and it's creating all these, or creating all these new 
tastes and desire for growth. And, and you just see this bundle of potential constantly every day, new growth. And what is she going to be? And what happens when this happens? And it's all sort of coming. But because you've tasted something, Peter says, you want more of it. And that's how infants are. Right now, she's at a place where she's getting to taste more and more. And her palate is expanding. This week alone, in the last seven days, she has had pizza, okay? And she has had tamales, good ones. And uh, the more you give her, the more excited she is about the potential of more coming. So when you walk into a room, she's excited that you're there, but what you're holding is more appealing to her. Anything you're holding is a potential thing that could go in here and be a new discovery, a new wonderful discovery. Peter's saying infants who have this new life in them, Christians who have this new life in them, are constantly looking for and craving anything that will bring that life about. It should be tasty to them. Once you've tasted the Lord, Peter says. I mean, once you've tasted it, Peter says, then you have this incredible longing. That should be, that's what a, that's what a Christian looks like. They're just longing for anything that will help them grow. And you say, what are they longing for? They're longing for the next image. They're longing to be built up into something. You're not just sitting around just wanting to taste things. That's not enough, not spiritually anyway. Uh, living stones, this is a great image. It's, it's, it's so hard to put into words. Uh, Peter's trying to create a framework for the growth that you're desiring as an infant. What, is, what, what, is, what happens, what do you do with all these little growing, desirous infants? put them together and you turn them into stones and you make them into something that's bigger than each one of them. That's what you desire. You don't just desire to sit over here and, you know, just become a a little heavy little baby, just whining and wanting. You can't just whine and want. You gotta, you gotta, because then just about you. I don't know. You gotta be a house. So Peter has in mind a structure. These infants turn to stones. This dynamic believer. So on the one hand, you're growing. On the other hand, you're being built into something that's bigger than you. So when we're together, listen to this. When we're together, we're something more. More than just your individual spiritual life. We are something more together. And we take on dimensions. That's the idea of the, this structure that comes to mind. We take on dimensions. It's greater than 3D because it's multidimensional when we're together. The potential that we have to take on the dimensions of God's life and character among us. That's what Peter wants to remind them of. What are you longing for? Is it just political reform? Where's your ecclesiological desire? Is your, is your taste buds and your, 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 your palate just for other things? And it's not 
big enough to understand what God's doing here? It's just very much a mystery. When God brings us together, it's, it's almost like a, a beautiful piece of architecture. I mean, he goes so far as to say, it's, you're not a building, but you're kind of like a structure in a building because it's beautiful and it contains God in a way that nothing else in the world does and nothing else in the world can. And so what's in us, these growing, desiring infants, materializes into something corporate and bodily. Peter says you can't see it in that sense. It's not like a real structure, but it's that real. It's that real. Now, before you tease out these two images, this is what you have to do. You say, all right, so Peter says infants and living stones. Well, he's going to say something before it to help you understand why he used those images. And then he's going to say something after it to help develop those two images. And we gotta, we got to look at both. I was hoping to do that in one sermon, but it's impossible. I'm not, I, I cannot, I'm not capable of putting two points in one sermon. Uh, so I've divided it in half. So we're going to do the first part. We're going to look at the bottom line, the groundwork for why Peter uses these two images for us. Uh, and, and it is just literally phenomenal what Peter says about these two images. Uh, so, what's the theology behind uh, the emerging of these two metaphors? Well, at the end of chapter 1, because this begins chapter 2, when you get to chapter, at the beginning of chapter 1, or toward the end of it, after he has elaborated on this incredible salvation that God's given us, he says, so you've purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Key word. What for? Because that would be the question. All right, Peter, you've elaborated on this great salvation that's occurred in chapter 1. What am I supposed to do with this great thing that's happened to me? Peter says, it's for, it's for sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It's the first thing he's going to say. You have this incredible, costly, imperishable salvation. Why? For community. You need to become an incredible lover. Since you've been born again. Because you've been born again. Because you have this new life in you. There's our infant imagery. Because you have this new life in you. You're connected to God. You're connected to people. Can't have one without the other. And what, what birthed you was this incredible seed that, that you can't kill. It's imperishable. Uh, it's living and abiding. It just, it's, a, it's a whole new life that just keeps developing. And notice this. He says, listen, everything else in the world, all grass, flowers, all their glory, the glory of all of the great things in society, they all wither and they fall. Only the thing that created you will remain forever. It's eternal. Peter closes this by saying, and you received that word. That's the word you received. Now, 
Let me give you a picture because I think it's important to see this text as a whole. Uh, sort of, um, let's see, it looks like this. This is the best way to sort of visualize how we get to these images of infant and living stones and why they form our identity. Peter says, uh, you're born again. That's the new life that's in you, and it creates a community. You can't be born again all by yourself. You're born again, and then you become part of a community. You, you earnestly learn to love one another uh, without hypocrisy, and to do that, you have to put away certain sins, and he, he describes those up here in 2.1, which is the next verse. So after he said this great eternal word that has rebirthed you, or Put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. So whatever it means to love you, it means putting away those sort of evil sins. And it's sandwiched right in between this truth. So whatever this new life has created, part of what you desire as this new life is this new community of people who treat each other differently than the way the world treats them. Everybody. And so at the end there, you know, those are all antisocial behaviors. <laughs> I mean, I think you would agree with me. These are antisocial behaviors. Uh, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. What's Peter getting at with that? Well, the first word is sort of the head noun and describes everything else. And it's kakia is the word. It's just nasty. It's just a mean person. It's the mean streak in you. How fast do you go, by the way? From being sweet to kiss my, how fast do you go to that? Oh, you're so sweet. Everything's going so great. And the next second, you, how fast? That's what kakia is. Just clean, mean. You can go from being sweet to all of a sudden, there is literally no boundaries to the way you see people or the way you'll attack them. That's what Peter says. These are obviously antisocial behaviors. Deceitful. They produce deceit because you're sort of hypocritical. That's the idea of the word because it uses the word uh, for being uh, hypocritical. Then you become envious and you slander. You say, what does all that really mean? Well, the person who envies is basically a person in the community, in the room, who is concerned that somebody is more valuable than they are or appears to others as more valuable than they are. So most of us, this is where our big rub comes in community, is that we're, we're just very concerned. Wait a minute, do, do she, they have more friends than I do? How come they got... By, um, I don't think anybody cares that I... And you're worried about your value. And so you know what you do. You compete. You're basically competing with everybody. Or, or a few. And then the other, so then you, you result to slander, which is sort of the negative cutting things. You know, on any given day, you and I can do something that if somebody told somebody else about it, everybody would get the feeling that we must be bad people. And this is the slander is the idea of when you verbalize what's negative about somebody else's life. 
I mean, it actually comes out of your mouth in words. In other words, you don't take my whole life, you take this one thing about me, and you highlight it verbally to somebody else. And most of the time, that's because it makes us feel good about who we are. And so if you're competing for value, then you'll highlight verbally someone else's shortcomings. That's devastating to community. I'll bet it's wrecked families in here. Wrecks every kind of community. So the new birth is essentially this new communal reality that comes into existence when you come to Christ, so that when you come to Christ, you come into relationship with other people. So Peter is trying to reframe your individual understanding, your individualistic understanding, where your life is about you. That's American. The, the most American thing about us is our individualism, our autonomy, which is completely opposite and opposed to community. It's completely opposed to anyone else having say in my life. That's what he's saying. So Peter is trying to describe this new life, and, you, and, he, and he quotes Isaiah here on this new birth with the new seed. And I want to go back here for a second, because this is Isaiah 40, by the way. This is Isaiah 40, 6 through 8. And um, Peter used, by the way, he just uses Old Testament everywhere. He's, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna encounter it everywhere we go. So we've got, we just got we to think about it because he's using it very, very strategically. Why say that? Why quote Isaiah 40? What does this have to do with new birth and new community? What does it have to do with infants and living stones? All, gra- all flesh is like grass. What is he telling these people who are losing their grip because society is rejecting them? Well, you've been born again. Well, what what is that? Peter's going to say, it's a seed that's enduring. It's a lasting seed. You're made of something eternal. So he's going to contrast this new birth that we have, this born again image here. He's going to contrast this eternal word that we have in our life with, with Everything else in the world that's temporal, its glory is temporal, its, its existence, it withers, it falls, everything else. The only thing that lasts forever is this thing you have that God has given you through his word. And the word is g- the gospel. It's not the Bible in this text. It's the gospel. You heard it preached to you, Peter says at the end of verse 25, and that's what you received What did you get? You got something eternal that lasts forever inside of you that's constantly growing. You know, an an eternal quality of life. But why quote this? Why, Why focus on its eternal quality? All flesh, all flower, anything glorious is not gonna survive. Here's what he's saying to this group of people. It's not going to survive anyway. Nothing else outside of you is going to survive. Did you lose it? It's not going to survive anyway. This is a profound statement he makes. 
You know, Rome was considered the greatest empire the world had ever known. And it was dominating these little Asian, this Asia Minor area where these people live. And it was increasingly opposed to these believers. Rome was called the eternal city. I can't, certainly it's not going anywhere. Certainly all the, it's power and pomp. It's not going anywhere, is it? Peter's it's fading away, baby. Like a flower and like grass and like flesh, it'll be gone. It's interesting that Christianity far outlasted Rome. Transformed it first, then outlasted it. Without anybody making any steps toward the political. They were just the people of God, turning the world upside down by the way they lived. So the new birth generates this imperishable reality in contrast to all flesh that has dying quality to it. That includes cities, nations, and states. So Peter, in Isaiah 40, why does he take that verse out from Isaiah 40? It's because he was writing to Israel who's about to go into exile. And in fact, by the time you get to chapter 40, he, he writes to them, even though they're not in exile yet in Babylon, he writes to them as if they already are and starts comforting them now in Isaiah, the second half of Isaiah. He starts to comfort them before they even get there. Hey, you're going to need this when you're in Babylon. By the way, we've already looked at the end of 1 Peter where he describes all believers live in Babylon. All churches are essentially in Babylon. They're exiles everywhere. And so, that, so he, he's got Babylon on the brain, so he quotes Isaiah because these people are about to go into captivity to them. And they lost everything in that captivity. You think about this. Imagine if I just uprooted you literally from your family, your country, your society, your institutions, all the structures, all the things you're used to, and just plopped you down somewhere else. It would be devastating. You wouldn't know who you are. You'd be, you'd be swirling in your head to find something. Well, that's where they're headed. And so in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1, he'll say, Oh, comfort, oh, comfort. What do you say to them? What do you say, Peter says? Let me grab that verse and speak it to you in, in Peter's day, to Peter's readers. Those of you who are discouraged and outraged by a hostile culture and society, he's going to say, this too will pass. This too will pass. Like all flower, all glory, all ground. I don't care how powerful it is. I don't care how earth-shatteringly beautiful it is. It's gone. Don't put your hope in it. Your new life together is more enduring than any state or culture. Babylon and America alike are like flesh and grass. What I'm doing in you and through you as a body, that's the show. That's the show. And now, because of what Christ has done, which Peter explains in chapter 1, the words of Isaiah are even more meaningful to us 
than they were to Israel who was about to go into exile. Nothing can be more comforting. Uh, one of the commentators on First Peter writes this, the contrast between what is transitory and what is permanent is embodied in the Isaiah 40 text would be highly appropriate quote for a beleaguered community of Christians facing what gave every appearance of being permanent and even eternal the power and the glory of the Roman Empire. In such a situation, the announcement that the glitter and the pomp and the power of Roman culture was just grass compared to, the, to God's eternal words spoken in Jesus Christ, available through the gospel that was preached, accepted by the Christians in Asia Minor, would give them courage to hold fast. Even the hostility of that overwhelming power becomes more bearable when it is ultimately transitory in nature. It's going away. This is the word that has come to you, and it's more powerful than ever, Peter says. Listen, Christians who are born again, what's a Christian? We've said a couple of things already. They really desire community strongly, like a baby, wanting to put everything in its mouth. And they have a real good grip on reality. They know what is flesh and grass, and they know what isn't. They know what is eternal. They know what lasts forever. They know the difference. And so they don't have to panic when they're losing any of it. They're focused on forever kinds of stuff. Ask yourself, what kinds of things are you thinking about right now and really worried about? Are you more concerned about the election than the church? Are you more concerned about the outcome of that than you are who the church is and what it's supposed to be in the world? Because Peter's here saying, I need everybody's attention here. This is what we crave. We crave what God's building, not what anybody else is building. That's what we crave. That is connection to our community. It's the long game. What we do in here together and who we are and our identity here, that's the long game. It's not out there. Now, this is so, what's so remarkable about what Peter says to this group of people in just five chapters who are really, really reeling from this unrest and this opposition. And he's essentially saying this. Society can fall apart out there, but it cannot fall apart in here. They may mistreat each other out there, but we cannot do it in here. Lose anything, but not that. It's eternal. What I'm doing in you and through you together is eternal. The rest of it's going to go. And your relationships in here must be kept intact. That's why uh, Peter says, put away 
So he doesn't just say love each other with an earnest and pure and unhypocritical heart. So let me tell you what I mean by that. I don't want you to act like everybody else in the world is acting. And right now, do any of the, do you think any of these words apply to our society right now? Even our debates? We can't be in the same room with each other without these actually surfacing. This, this kind of feeling. Peter says, that's not appropriate or consistent. Put on something else. That's the idea of this word, to shed, to take off. So it's like a new wardrobe. You get that off, it doesn't, no, no longer looks good on you. You need something else to, to, in your wardrobe. You need a new wardrobe, a new, new character, new connections, new, new relational. You're not doing anything that's relationally destroying or socially alienating habits or practices that alienate. And Peter's saying two things here that's really important. Number one, social rejection by the world is expected, but social rejection in the church is not normal. It's not the life I've given you. Not in here. The second thing he says is the remedy for social rejection when it does happen to you is a genuine fellowship in here where you don't have to worry about it. Isn't that great? And that's what Peter's saying. So don't become toxic. Don't compete for value in here with your body, with your community. Don't compete for value. And don't make anybody look bad verbally. Because then you'll become toxic. So God's plan, uh, our identity and our impact, we're called to be a witness to the world. But the, the primary way we are a witness is the way we do life in here. Because it's different than out there. Which means that whatever, uh, what happens we picture what happens to people when they come to Christ. We picture the new life together. So, get this. We are, as a community, in God's eyes, required in order for witness to the world to happen. No one of us, all of us, together, are required community in order to demonstrate what God's doing. That's why when you get to John chapter, that's why I was just rethinking John chapter 17 and thinking about what Jesus prayed right before he died for, for us. And it's really interesting because Jesus is praying not for the ones that are just with him, but he even, he even says, I'm going to pray for every believer that comes to Christ from this point on, what I want them to know. And I went back through John and all I did was highlight Highlight a couple of things. Here's what he says. Jesus literally says, I'm going to pray. I'm coming to the Father. I'm going to pray on behalf of them. I'm not praying on behalf of the world. It struck me that Jesus said, I'm not praying for the world right now. It's desperate. It's needy. Not praying for them. I'm praying for the church. That's my last desperate prayer. It's for this group. Because they belong to me. I'm not going to be in the world any longer. They're going to still be here, he prays. 
The world's hated them because it hated me. They don't belong here. I didn't belong here. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. This is all about our relationship to the world. Uh, you sent me into the world. I'm sending them into the world. And I'm not, I'm, I am not praying only for them. I'm praying for everyone who believes in me, that they will all be one, just as the Father and I are one. I pray that they will be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. How are they going to believe that, they, that God's done? We all think we have to get out there and be the best arguers in the world to convince everybody God exists and that Jesus came. The truth is, we just have to live it right in here. We got to live it right in here, and they'll know. And he closes it. I in them and you in me, that they may be completely one, so that the world will know that you sent me and that you've loved them just as you loved me. People who have been loved by God do not love like this. They do not love like that. Jesus' prayer is so intense and it's so specific. God's plan to redeem the world requires us to be a certain way or it won't work. Now, just want to apply that real quickly to you. Um, that's enough. That's enough biblical theological understanding. Let's let's apply it real quick. So I, I wonder if you, you're thinking about the world and you say, "I'd love to see revival in the world." I mentioned that at the beginning of this talk about revival. Uh, listen to this. You look out at the world and you go, "We need revival in this country." Um, revivals don't happen in countries and outside the church. Revivals always start in the church, not outside. Revivals don't start because the church looks outside and says, you know, this country really needs. Revivals always start, get this, revivals always start when the people in the church can no longer tolerate themselves as they are. That's how revivals start. The church does it. The church changes. That's why we'll never have it out there. If you keep thinking it's out there. Uh, Jesus came into Jerusalem. Jesus came into the city, dominated by Rome, and he cleaned out the temple. The temple is what he cleaned out. If you look about uh, the revival in Wales in 1904, the Welsh Revival. Just happened to be reading a little bit about that. We'll talk more about it later because it has some implications for, for us. A fellow, but young man, mid-20s, comes to Christ. His name is Evan Roberts. Sits around with a few people at his church, 17 people, and he says, we, we, we need to start praying specifically about our lives. Anybody, anybody want to do it? And these people decided they would do it, and they started to pray about it. And uh, here's the four things that they uh, prayed for. This is what he asked everybody to do. He said, you must put away any unconfessed sin. You must put away any doubtful habit. You must, be, you must obey the Spirit promptly. 
and you must confess Christ publicly. We'll do these four things, and we'll ask God to do them in us first. And that's when 100,000 people right after that. The Welsh revival is one of the most um, Holy Spirit-driven revivals ever. And it all started with a group of people who said, we're, we're sick of who we are. Not we're sick of who society is. Powerful. So here's, a, here's, a, here's some practical things you could do, especially if you're in a small group. If you're not, I'd get in one, because this is where this kind of community gets teased out. But uh, if you're not in one, or if you are in one, here's some possible discussions you ought to have with your small group. Uh, first thing I would do is walk into the group tonight, or wherever you meet, and I would just say, let's just start, go around the room and confess the fact uh, that we have a lot of false idols in our life. We just, we got them. Everybody willing to verbally admit that. And then go ahead and say out loud, yeah, I'm more American than Christian. Let's go ahead and say it to the group. I was with a group of people Friday night. We did it. We said it to each other out loud. Yeah, I crave security. I crave my own way. I want my rights, and I'm actually very materialistic, more than I thought. That's more American than Christian. Wouldn't you agree, those things? That's more American than Christian. They go against everything Jesus said in Matthew 6 alone. And then the second thing I would do is uh, say it out loud. That's me. Uh, I confess, I mess around with the church. I just mess with it. I can give or take it. I don't see it like God sees it, not like Peter sees it. I don't know that I've ever seen it as a mission critical, you might say. I don't know that I've ever seen it. I think we can change America lots of ways. I don't think we need the church. I don't even know if the church plays a critical role in it. I'll tell you what, though, this election, ah, now we're talking. If that's how you think, then, then or you might sit around in the group and literally verbalize this. You know what? I do have some unhealthy, unholy relational feelings, attitudes, and behaviors that are undermining the life of this church. I think I'm competing with a couple of people in this church for value. And I know that I have verbally highlighted people's faults over their strengths. You might even go so far as to say, because we matter more than me, before I post anything political on any social media platform, I'll run it by you guys first, and then you tell me if I sound like a monkey. Because how we're perceived is more important than how I feel. That's revival. That's what happens in a church that changes it and transforms it. I don't, I mean, that's all I needed to hear, man. I read that and I was, I'm done. I'm just done. How many of you are just like, I'm done? Let me just see your hands. Are you just like sick of yourself right now? Are you sick of yourself? If you are, that's the beginning of revival. And if you'll verbalize it to somebody else, now we're really on our way. And if you're in here today and you say, I'd like to have something eternal in my life since everything I have is going <laughs> to, like he said, is going to fade like a flower and grass and flesh, well, then I'm going to introduce you to Jesus Christ because that's the only hope you have for it.
It's the only hope you have for something lasting. Other than that, you're wasting energy and time. Father, we, we just, we have no other words. Right now, just your spirit do a work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.